I want to read our text for the morning and then I will pray and we'll launch right into the message. Mark chapter 12 verses 41 to 44 is the text. Mark 12 verses 41 through 44. Last week we studied all about Jesus in the temple in chapters 11, 12 and the beginning of 13 and this morning we're going to look at the end of chapter 12 very specifically. So beginning in verse 41, Mark says that he, that is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your word, your written word that is perfect and holy and pure and righteous. And that when we, when we read it and we submit ourselves to it, you begin to teach us and correct us, even reprove us and train us for righteousness. Because it is your pure and holy and powerful word. You have said that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and it, and it divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it is a, a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Would you please now, Father, take your word and do that very thing, that our hearts may be laid bare before you, that, that we might come underneath it and that we might, that we might be showered with its its grace and its compassion, that we might be cut with its penetrating knife, that we might be healed by its, its soothing and salving power, that we might be motivated by the grace that we find here. But Lord, do this in Your Word, in our hearts, for Your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I know people who grew up poor. Um, I'm sure that you uh, know people who have grown up poor. And, and I've actually, um, either by way of watching something on the television, by way of a documentary or a biography, or something where you've seen a person who grew up with nothing and then became successful, and now they have everything. And, you know, they, they grew up with dirt floors and uh, barely a roof over their head, and now they drive really nice cars and live in a really big house and go on really exotic vacations. And you've probably seen uh, those kinds of things before on television or read in books. And, and, and you look back and you're like, wow, that is really a, a success story. Well, I, I have a friend who, who grew up uh, poor. His, his dad had fought in the war and... Uh, became paralyzed, and so he was homebound 
uh, when he came back from the war, his mother worked behind the counter at a grocery store. That, uh, no, not at a grocery store, but at a convenience store um, that she walked to every day because they did not have a car. They lived in an RV, in an RV park just outside of a, a major city. And, and uh, it was my friend, his brother, and his mom and dad. And he has told me stories about their struggles. He's told me about when he was in school, his brother and he would walk home from school during lunch because they didn't have enough money to buy the school lunch. And he, re he remembers opening up the refrigerator and having nothing to eat. And he would literally take the ketchup that was in the door, put it on a plate, sprinkle salt on it, stir it around and eat ketchup for lunch on school days. He told me one time he was in the 10th grade and he wanted to try out for basketball. The only problem was he didn't have any basketball shoes or even tennis shoes. And so he and his mom walked down to Bargaintown, if you can remember Bargaintown. Walked down to Bargaintown, found a pair of shoes, went to the counter, and they were $3.70. And my friend told me that when his mom pulled out her little purse and started counting out the money, he said that, that she had tears coming down her face, and he only supposed that those tears were for two reasons. One, because this was all she could afford for her son, and two, because it was the last bit of money that they had at the time. He said that when he took the court the next day with those shoes, all of his teammates laughed at him because they weren't the right kind of shoes. They were poor. They were poor. Now, he was good at baseball. And so he had a very good high school baseball career, got a college scholarship, and went on to play four years of college baseball. He got his education, and out of, out of uh, college, he got a very good job and started making good money. And, and he thought that he was rich. Now, according to our standards, we wouldn't consider him rich, but he thought he was filthy rich because he had never seen so much money. And, and, and by... I think we would, we would think, okay, well, he probably started buying really you know, nice clothes, getting a nice house, and driving a really nice car. But, but actually, he, he drove a modest car. He lived in a very modest house and wore very modest clothes. And you're like, well, wh why did that happen? Well, it was because right out of college, somebody brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. And just shared with him about God's love in Christ. Everything that we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, they shared with him and said, listen, you are a sinner. You, are, you have rejected God's goodness, but God in Christ has, has brought love. He can bring reconciliation and healing and forgiveness to your life. And my friend believed the gospel like that and was saved. And, and his salvation, his freedom from sin, his freedom from the bondage and the pollution and the power of sin in his life created a thankfulness and a humility and a joy in the gospel like it should create in all Christians. And you know what happened? He continued to live a modest life, driving a modest car, living in a modest home, wearing modest clothes, and he became a huge giver. He gave huge to his church. He gave huge to his community, to his family members. He gave huge to college students and even young married couples who didn't have enough money to get by. He has been a giver his whole Christian adult life. And I can say 
with, with great factualness that he has been a blessing for the last 20 years to the people who are called the people of God because he is a giver. But we would have thought, man, if anybody would have gone to, to have that rags to riches kind of story, it would have been him. And so I want to say this to you. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. All right? Nothing tangibly demonstrates your worship of God more than how you use your money. Nothing demonstrates tangibly your worship of God more than how you steward your money. Let me tell you, your use of money is a direct reflection of who you are, what you worship, and how you spend your time. That's what it is. All right, I'm going to say that again. How you use your money is a direct reflection of who you are, what you worship, and how you spend your time. And so, this morning as we look at this poor widow, I believe that Mark wants us to see in this text worship. Alright, he wants us to see worship. This text is about worship. He is telling us that worship that pleases Jesus and demonstrates true faith, true faith in Him, includes extravagant financial giving. That's what it includes. It includes extravagant financial giving. And I use the word financial very specifically and purposefully there because finances is what, is what we see in the passage. And also, finances, money dollars, cents, is actually going to be the most clear reflection of what our heart toward God is. Okay, so if you want to bring pleasure to Jesus, if you want to demonstrate real faith in Jesus, all right, this is the deal, then you will give the financial resources that God has entrusted to you back to Him. That's what you will do for His kingdom work. And so what I want to do is I want to give you three aspects of financial giving this morning that will move you to deeper worship. Three aspects of financial giving that will move you to deeper worship. Jeremy, would you be willing to grab me a cup of water, please? Thank you. All right, so the first thing I want us to see is the act of giving in verses 41 and 42. The act of giving... But I'm just going to tell you, you don't have to get your eyes glued down to verses 41 and 42 because I, I want to bring you to this verse background-wise. I, I think that if we were to just like hop in and look at what was going on here, we, we might be a little bit confused because if you're anything like I used to be, then you don't really have any idea as to what God's people gave, how much they gave, and why they gave leading up to this moment in the temple. Like if you read the Old Testament and you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Numbers and Deuteronomy and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see different things going on by way of giving around the tabernacle and temple, but you really don't, you've never really been able to make sense of it all and exactly how people gave and why people gave. And so I want to give you a bit of a history lesson right now so that we can appreciate what's going on in the temple and so that we can understand what God's ways were um, even in the Old Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament background would include tithing, giving, and offerings tithing giving and offerings and I, I use those three words specifically so that you can make sense of them in your head tithing giving and offerings and so we read about um, what's called the Lord's tithe um, it's also called the Levitical tithe 
in Leviticus chapter 27 and Numbers chapter 18. And, and what is this? Thank you, Jeremy. The Levitical tithe funded the priesthood ministry. It, it, um, basically what happened was the um, produce, whether it be your fruits and your vegetables or your animals, would go toward the tabernacle, the, the temple ministry that the Levites and others used to maintain ministry day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. And it was 10%. That's what the word tithe means. It was 10%. And so if you're an Old Testament saint, if you're a worshiper of God in 900 B.C., then you're giving 10% of your annual income to the Levite tithe. Okay? Additionally, you are giving 10% for a festival tithe. A festival tithe is described in Deuteronomy chapter 12 very specifically. And the festival tithe was basically funded this annual feast. It was a celebration it was a rejoicing. It was a community event where people celebrated the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and being in a covenant relationship with God. And it was also 10% of your annual income. So you have a Levitical tithe, 10%. On top of that, a, a festival tithe, 10%. 20% right now of your annual income. Then there was what was called a poor tithe or a tithe for the poor. And we could go into detail about it, but essentially it was given every three years. And it was 10% of your three-year income. And so possibly what a family would do was take 3.3% of their income for year one, 3.3% for year two, and 3.3% for year three to, to equal 10%. So if you want to think about it in terms of annually, right now you're looking at 23.3% of your income that a worshiper would be giving to God and His work. Then, then there was what, what I would call the gleaning gift. The word gleaning. Y'all remember this in the Old Testament about gleaning? And so what, what, did, what was that? It was Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. It commanded a person, especially those who were farmers and who would harvest land, let's just say it was uh, uh, vegetables, okay? That worshiper was to leave the northeast corner, the northwest corner, the southeast corner, and the southwest corner for the poor. They were not to harvest all of those vegetables or all of those fruits so that those were, who were in need could come by and get what they needed to fill their stomachs with food. And that would be what would be called a gleaning gift. People were gleaning off of your produce. There were even special taxes at some times to help with the tabernacle or with the temple. We read about that in Nehemiah chapter 10. But then we have the offerings. We have two different kinds of offerings. We have first fruit offerings and we have free will offerings. The first fruit offerings we read about in Numbers chapter 18, verses 11 to 13. And basically what happened was this. is say, I am, I'm a, I'm a vegetable farmer. And, and I have planted, I have watered, I have been awaiting the harvest to come in. And all of a sudden, I go out and I begin to see these vegetables come. And man, they're looking really good. They're beginning to look very plump and ripe. And I'm like, man, this looks like it's going to be a wonderful harvest. Now, I'm a worshiper. I'm going to go and pick my very first fruits that I see and the best ones. And I'm going to say, God, you are giving a great increase this year. I, I worship you. I, I bow down before you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take these first fruits. I'm going to go down to the temple and I'm going to give them to you for your kingdom's work because I'm thankful and I'm worshipful to you. And so here I go. And so I take the best of my first fruits and I go give them to God. It's not mandatory. 
It's not obligatory. It's because I worship God and I want to give him my first fruits. And, it's an, and listen to this, it is an expression of my faith. Because what I'm saying is, God, I'm giving you my best and my first, and I'm going to anticipate you giving me even more as the crop comes in. And then you had a free will offering. You see that in Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 36. And, and, and a free will offering was simply a voluntary gift that you're giving out of love for God and thankfulness to God for any, any sort of reason that you want to. It doesn't even have to be provoked. But if something happens in your life or God rescues you or He redeems you or He forgives you of some great sin, you could, you could just go and give an offering simply because you, you, you're just thankful to God for what, for what He has done in your life. And, and so that would be called a, a free will offering. All right, so let's, uh, let's just pause for a moment. And, and, and I want to give an illustration. I'll, I'll use Phil and Candace as an example, all right? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix metaphors here um, because I'm going to use kind of American 21st century currency but talk about, like, they're in 900 B.C. So let's just say Phil and Candace are vineyard owners, okay? They're, they're vineyard owners, and they, they work the land, and they're living in 900 B.C., and they worship God. They go to the temple, all right? They, they are worshipers, and, and, and Phil and Candace are making... $100,000 a year with their vineyard, okay? This is what Phil and Candace would do. They would give $10,000 for the, for the Levite tithe, $10,000. They would give another $10,000 for the annual feast. They would keep $3,300 to prepare for the every third year uh, gift. And then... Things were going well. They, oh, they would also leave the gleaning of the, of the different corners of their vineyard so that people could eat the grapes off of there. And then if they, something wonderful happened in their life, they offered a free will offering. Who knows, $1,000, $5,000. And then if they wanted to give first fruits, they would offer the best of their grapes to offer a, a first fruit offering. And it's very likely that they're going to give somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $35,000 back to the Lord in the building of His kingdom in any given year. Okay, so now they're going to live off the, what, maybe 70 grand because they're giving back to the Lord those things. That is the picture of what an Old Testament family or an Old Testament believer would be doing year in and year out. Okay? okay just so we have that picture. Now, we're, we're, um, we're going to approach verse 41 and 42 in just a moment, but I want, to, I want to say one other thing. God has always expected His people to give their best their first portion as he has given to them. He, he, has, he, has, he has always expected for, for his people to give significantly back to him what he has given to them. And so I get this not only from all of these passages in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all of this, but in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, we read about two brothers. Carson, what brothers do we see, you think, in Genesis chapter 4? Cain and Abel, that's right. Cain and Abel. And, and Cain was a farmer, whereas Abel was a shepherd. And, and they both brought offerings to the Lord. And Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 to 5, actually describe the offerings that they brought. And it says that Cain brought an offering from the field. It says that Abel brought his, his um, first offering of the, of the lambs or of the sheep and the biggest and the plumpest of, of his flock. And it says that God looked down at Cain's offering and was not pleased with it, 
but he looked down at Abel's offering and was pleased with it and accepted it. Now, the language is, is subtle, no doubt about it. But the point was this. God accepted Abel's offering because it was his first and it was his best. He did not accept Cain's offering because it was just part of, of what was in his field. What does that tell us? It tells us that God expects our first and our best. And he is not pleased with what we're just going to give him. Whether it be leftovers, whether it be, just be part of what we have. He's not, he's not going to accept that. He's not pleased with that. And so giving, I want to tell you this, giving is a declaration. That's what it is. Every time you give, you are declaring something. And this is what you're declaring. I worship a glorious God. That's what I'm declaring. And then you're declaring, I am thankful for my glorious God. That's what you're declaring. And you're also declaring this. You're declaring this. I trust my glorious God. I'm not going to hold on to my best or to my, or to my first fruit because I'm trusting that God is always going to provide for me. All right? And so that is what you're declaring when you give. And when you don't give your best and you don't give your first and you don't give significantly, then God is not looking down on you with pleasure. He's wanting you to enter more into His worth, His glory, His sufficiency, His faithfulness to provide for you. Because I will tell you, if you're a Christian and you don't give significantly and you don't give joyfully and you don't give cheerfully and you don't give your first, Listen, this is the deal. You just don't understand His grace. You don't understand His provision. You don't understand His faithfulness. And so that's where God wants to get us this morning. Now, now let's look at verses 41 to 42. That background leads us to this moment in the temple, and they're in the court of the women, like what we talked about last week. So men and women are in the court, all right? And they are worshiping. They're singing and praying. There's teaching going on, and there's giving. Jewish worshipers are excited about the Passover. All right? They are preparing themselves for the feast. Thousands of people are coming in and out of the temple at this point. All right? And so Jesus sits down on a bench, and he watches people enter into the court of women, and he watches people give their offerings. Now, what I think you'll find interesting is that there wasn't just one box. There were 13 boxes. And these 13 boxes were all shaped like a trumpet. And, and, and so the trumpet, the neck of the trumpet would come up and then the opening of it, the end of it would be like this and people would come by and if they were giving, let's just say, a free will offering, they would take their money and throw it into this trumpet that was labeled free will offering and people would see what they were giving as they threw it into this top trumpet box that went down to the bottom. And so there were 13 of these. Jesus was sitting adjacent to one of them and he's watching what is going on here. All right, now, as best as I can tell, probably these are free will offerings that both the rich people and the poor widow give. Now, there are two sets of givers. If you're looking down at the text, there's the rich people. Uh, they have a lot of money. They're not scratching and clawing at the end of the month trying to figure out how to put food on the table. All right? They have plenty of money to pay their bills, provide for their needs, participate in day-to-day -day routines of life. They're rich. Now, the poor widow, she has no husband. She has no substantive provision she apparently has no family members to rely on. And according to Jesus' words in verse 40, if you look down, if you're looking at your Bible, you can look at verse 40, she is very possibly being taken advantage of by the scribes and the priests who devour widows' houses. Very possibly. All right? And so 
The other people have riches. This woman has nothing. The rich people put in large sums and the poor widow puts in two copper coins. These large sums likely are big silver, gold coins, all right? They just, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of money, all right? And everyone would know that these rich people are putting in a lot of money because they're carrying in these money bags and they're throwing these numbers of coins into these trumpets and people can not only see the coins going in the trumpets, but they can hear them as well. Clang, 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 clang. It's like, you know, you could just envision, you know, one couple sitting back and watching another family put in all this money and you can just kind of see this one man say, can you believe how much money they just gave to the temple wow it was that kind of thing going on now if you see down at the text it says that she gave two two small copper coins now these copper coins were the absolute smallest amount of money that existed all right one copper coin get this was was one one twenty-eighth of a denarius now a denarius was a day's wage for a day laborer If I owned a vineyard and I went and said, hey, I need you to work in my vineyard today from 9 to 5. If that guy worked from 9 to 5 just pulling grapes, I would pay him one denarius. Okay? Not a very much amount of money. He's a day laborer who works for a day's wage, and I just give it to him. This copper coin is one one one-twenty-eighth of that amount. And so she has two copper coins, so it's one-sixty-fourth of that amount. This is not much money. It's probably not even enough to buy a piece of bread. And she puts it in and so what we know right now is that rich people are putting in a lot of money a poor widow is putting in the smallest amount of money one can possibly give but they're both giving money to god Uh, that's the act of giving now let's look at verses 43 and 44 because here we get to the heart of giving we get to the heart of giving let's read verses 43 and 44 again he called his disciples to him and said to them truly i say to you This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Keep your eyes on the text. Let's make three observations. First observation, Jesus is intentional to teach his disciples about giving. See that? It's the last week of his life. It's the last week he is spending with his disciples, training them on how to move his kingdom forward and advance the gospel forward. And he takes the time to spend with them, teaching them about how to give. That's significant. All right? He he doesn't just ignore the issue of money. He presses into the issue of money because he knows how significant money is to our hearts. And so I will tell you as your pastor... I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to ignore the issue of money. I don't want to hide from the issue of money. I want to say what Jesus would say, money is close to your heart. And wherever your money is, there your heart is also. Second observation I want us to make is this, is that Jesus declares the divine perspective about giving. And I say that because he says, truly, I say to you, literally, amen, I say to you. Whenever Jesus uses that formula, truly I say to you, he is letting his hearers know that they are listening to the will of God. They are listening to the way of God. They are listening to the absolute declaration of divine truth. Listen to what I'm about to say because it comes from God. This is God's perspective. 
Third observation I want us to make is that according to Jesus, the cost to the giver is more important than the amount of the gift. The cost to the giver is more important than the amount of the gift. He says, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. They gave out of their abundance, but she gives out of her poverty all that she has to live on. And so we're like saying, what are you trying to say here, Jesus? I mean, um, Jesus is saying God looks at the heart of the giver and the amount that that person has to give. And he gauges, he, he measures the giving amount, not by dollars and cents, but about on what he has given to them and what they're willing to give back to him. And so let, let's just be clear here again. And, 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 and maybe this is redundant. But so we have a family who walks into the temple, into the court of the women, and they, they come in with money bags. I mean, they made $200,000 this year, and they come in with an offering of $15,000. And they've got multiple bags. You've got a, a husband with a bag, a wife with a bag, kids are marching in with bags. Well, this is a lot of money, all right? And they just unload a ton of coinage into these offering boxes. And then a widow who has one penny to her name walks up and just drops the two little copper coins into the offering box, and Jesus says... She gave more than they did. And, and, and the disciples are thinking, how could that possibly be? I mean, Jesus, would you think for a moment how much the priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin are going to be able to do in the temple with $15,000? They're going to be able to do so much with that large amount of money. They're not going to be able to do anything with the little penny that she gave. She might as well have kept it. And Jesus would say, it's not about what can be done with the money. It's about the heart of the person who gives the money. It's not the size of the gift. It's about the heart of the giver. And if you don't hear anything else in this sermon, I want you to hear this. And if you don't write down anything else, write down this. The heart of the giver determines the worth of the gift. The heart of the giver determines the worth of the gift. This woman had a heart forgiven. What is her heart? I believe we have a glimpse into her heart. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to see. It's what Mark wanted us to see. We wanted, he wanted us to see her heart so that we could be like her in a way. First of all, I observe that she has a heart of courage. I mean, just think about it. Imagine the intimidation factor. First of all, she's walking into this massive amazingly beautiful temple that is intimidating in and of itself. I mean, have you ever gone to a, just a beautiful structure? I mean, I, I remember going into the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. when I was 17 years old, and I was a bit intimidated walking into this beautiful and glorious place. That's what it was like. She was intimidated just by that. But listen, she has no husband to walk with. She has no social standing. She has no nice clothes to wear. She has no money bag to carry over her shoulders. But she also has no shame. She is courageous. She walks right in there and offers her gift to God because she knows what matters is not what other people think about her. What matters is not how she's dressed. 
What matters is not how she looks. What matters is not her social standing. What matters is what God knows her to be, and that is a worshiper of Him. That's what matters. And so she's courageous. She has a heart of courage. But she also has a heart of faith. She has a heart of faith. I mean, this offering is a declaration of her trust in God. I mean, this is essentially what she's saying. As she's walking in the temple, she could be saying, I've lost my husband. I've lost my financial security. I've lost my daily provision. I've lost my daily comfort. I've lost everything that I know about tangibly about my future. But I'm walking in and I am going to give what money that I have to my faithful God because I trust Him with my life. I trust Him with all that I have and with all that I am. I trust Him, I trust Him, I trust Him. I trust Him. And so I may be tempted to be angry or frustrated or even right now as a widow confused, but I am going to put my two coins in saying, God, I trust you. And so she has a heart of faith. She also has a heart of worship. All right, so she she has a heart of courage, a heart of faith, and a heart of worship. I mean, this offering is a declaration of her worship of God. She is saying to God, God, you are worthy of my best. You are worthy of all that I have. You made me. You sustain me. You give me everything that I need for a life of godliness. You have redeemed my life from sin and depravity. You have forgiven me of my sins. You offer me not only life here, but life eternal. You are the one true essential power in the universe and you have reached down and loved me specifically and personally even in the midst of much pain and much loss you are worthy of my worship i'm giving what i have to you she has a heart of worship and then she has a heart of generosity i think any of you can observe that she is ready to give she is bountiful in her giving she is lavish in her giving you think, wait, wait a minute, Ryan. She, she may be given all that she has, but she's not lavish. No, no, she is lavish. She is, all right? Because Jesus would say that lavishness, generosity, is not based on the amount of money, but it's everything that you give of what you have. That's lavishness. The definition of generosity is this. I just looked it up last night. All right, generosity in the dictionary is this. Liberality in giving and a freedom from selfishness liberality and giving and a freedom from selfishness and i believe that sums up this woman's heart pretty well she is generous and so what is her heart she has a heart of courage a heart of faith a heart of worship and a heart of generosity now let me take a breath for a moment this poor widow represents the heart of giving but she does not represent the standard of giving. Jesus wants us to look at her and admire her, be motivated by her, love her, and even pattern ourselves after her in some way. But I want to tell you something. She is not the standard of giving because it would be about three days after this very event that the Savior gives everything that He has. Everything. The first thing that he gives is his dignity. He is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is approached by these guards and these leaders and he is treated like a criminal immediately. He gives up dignity there. He's rushed into the temple and said they had this mock, this mock trial 
and he is stripped of his dignity as they blaspheme him and mock him and ridicule him. Then he gives his dignity as he's handed over to the Romans and they strip him of all of his clothes and put this purple robe on him and this crown of thorns and they give him this reed and they bow down before him, not in true worship, but in mocking worship. And he is giving up his dignity all of the way. And then he gives up his body as they then chain him to a post and begin to whip him and whip him and whip him. As blood begins to pour out, he not only gives his body, but he gives his blood as they put the nail in his hands and in his feet as blood begins to drip out of his body and they put him on the cross. And not only does he give his dignity and his body and his blood, but he then begins his own soul. As he's up on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives up fellowship with his father who he had known eternally. That is stripped away from him and he is giving up the most precious thing to him in all of the world, which is intimacy with his glorious father. And then he gives up his very life when he says it is finished he gives everything everything that is why Paul said in 2nd Corinthians 9 verse 6 says you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he has become poor so that you through his poverty might become rich We read all about it in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. How are we rich? We are rich in love. We are rich in mercy. We are rich in the fact that we have been adopted by the Father. We are rich that we have forgiveness, the redemption of sins. We are rich that we have all the blessings of the heavenly places. We we are rich because we have an eternal inheritance right beside Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. We are rich because Jesus Christ has given everything on our behalf. He's the standard for giving. Now that is the heart of giving. Finally today, I want us to look at the practice of giving. And and under this, these these are principles and applications that will help you and I become the kind of givers that God wants us to be and that we would we should want to be. I think the first first principle I want to tell you is that your giving should be based on grace. Your giving should be rooted in grace. Your giving should be motivated by grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved love poured out into your heart in spite of the fact that you have deserved His wrath. That's grace. All right, that, that's what it is. If you want to know what grace is, that's it. All right, so, so God's grace is His giving you His best blessings in spite of the fact that you've not earned a single one of them. I, I do like the acronym GRACE, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Grace, all right, because, because um, you have received grace. Being saved is grace. Being forgiven is grace. Being reconciled to the Father is grace. Having a home in heaven is grace. Being eternally adopted by Him is grace. It's all grace. Right? And so that's what should motivate your giving unto God. And so I want to tell you that this, is, this would be an application. Or that, that's what you need to know. You need to know that your giving should be based on grace. And I want to flip it, and I want to tell you that you should be a grace giver. A grace giver. Now, 
Now, I'm not big on acronyms, and, and you guys probably know that after two years, but I'm using two in a matter of two minutes right here. All right, so grace, God, riches at Christ's expense. But I believe that this, this acronym of grace that I'm about to give you captures the essence of giving from the New Testament. All right, so if you're taking notes and you say, I want to be a grace giver, all right, then what you could do is just like, like write G-R-A-C-E down, vertically down the page. Because this is what I would tell you. First of all, to be a grace giver means that you give generously. Generously. You, you, you don't give sparingly. All right, you're not the guy who makes $30,000 a year and then at Christmas time you put $30 cash in the offering plate and relieve your conscience by saying, well, I did my part. No, generously. You, you, you give lavishly the way that this woman represents giving. You, you give all that you have. And, and, and of course, I, I don't think we have to talk very much about God's will is not for everybody to give everything that they have all of the time or else... None of us would have anything to give anybody else, okay? We don't, we don't need to, I don't think I need to waste my breath talking about that, but we have to give generously and lavishly if we're going to be a grace giver. The second one is regularly. Regularly. I just want to just give you a very practical description of this. Give every time you get income. Just give every time you get income. God has given to me, I'm going to give back to Him as a representation of my trust in Him, my worship of Him, and my thanksgiving to Him. Give affectionately. Affectionately. What I mean by that is give out of love for God. If God has penetrated your heart and changed your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from a heart that was consumed with self and material and worldly stuff, and now you have spiritual eyes to see, and you have a spiritual heart that beats, and you know that you have a Father in heaven who cares for you. How can you not love Him and be drawn to Him and want to give back to Him a portion of all that He's given to you? Give cheerfully. Cheerfully. And what I mean by that is with excitement. I mean, with with a great amount of zeal. There's a degree into which you have gained income. And the first check that you write goes to, in this instance, the church. And you write out a check for Redeemer Church and you fold it up and you can't wait to get on Sunday to start your worship of God by putting that in the box. Because you are excited to be a part of God building His kingdom. And then, eagerly. With great anticipation. You, you, you give eagerly because you don't know exactly what God is going to do with this money, but you know He's going to build His kingdom. You know that He's going to advance His gospel. I, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in Redeemer Church with our missionaries, with our Adopt-A-Street ministry, with, with, with our Friendship Fest, with our Christmas outreach. I can't wait to see what God is going to do, but I'm excited to be a part of it. Generously, regularly, affectionately, cheerfully, eagerly. That's a grace giver. And I want to say a few really practical things under this. Um, First of all, married couples, pray about what to give. Pray about what to give. Agree together on what to give and always give to God first. Don't give to Him in the middle or at the end to see what's left over, but give to Him first. Parents, teach your kids to give. Teach them as early as you possibly can. I know when when my son started getting money, whether it be for something that they had earned or whether it was a gift for, for birthday or something like this, this was, the, this was the rule that we created in our house. All right? You're going to give some, save some, spend some. 
We're going to give first, we're going to save second, we're going to spend third. Do we want our boys to spend money? Absolutely. It was given to them to have fun. But we're going to learn the principle that God has given to us this money and we're going to give back to Him as an expression of worship, as an expression of thankfulness, and as an expression of trust. And then let's save some so that we can learn that principle and then we can spend what is left over. Give to the church. I want to just give to the church. Give to your family who is in need. Give to your community and your friends and even missionaries if you get the opportunity as you expand um, out. But be a giver. I mean, just, just have an open hand with everything that you have. All right, so I've got money. I've got resources. I've got clothes. I've got a bed to sleep on. I've got, uh, I've got a car, an extra car. Everything that I have, I'm not talking about me personally. I'm just saying uh, this is hypothetical. All right, all right. But it's all open-handed. All right, okay, somebody needs a bed to sleep on, bam, right here, they can have it. Somebody needs a car to drive, I've got an extra one, they can have it. it it's, it's about having an open hand with everything that you have, not a closed fifth with anything. Okay? All right, next, application. Climb the ladder of worshipful giving. Climb the ladder of worshipful giving. Some of you never give. My goal for you is to be a new giver. Just, just start giving. Now, some of you give sometimes. You give sporadically. My goal for you would be to become a regular giver. Some of you are regular givers. My goal would you be faithful givers. You become grace givers. Some of you are generous. Like, you really are. You look at your life and you're generous with your money. You're, you're, you're generous with some of your resources. You give things away to people. That's really good. My goal for you, would you become an extravagant grace giver? Generous and regular and affectionate and cheerful and, and, and excited to give at every opportunity to do it. And so this is what we call the, the, the ladder of grace giving, the ladder of worshipful giving. And so what you would want to do here is let's just say you're a never giver. I don't ever give to the church. I don't ever give to missions. I don't ever give to the mercy fund. I don't ever. Then you start becoming a new giver. And you begin to try to give what you can right now. I mean, for those who never give, it would be a huge act of faith to give $10 or $20 into the plate. All right, I understand that. But what you want to do is right now identify where you are on this ladder. Where are you? I mean, if you, take, if you took an honest, accurate, evaluation of where you are as a giver where do you fall on this ladder your goal at this point would be to move to the next rung on the ladder uh, okay I'm a consistent giver I uh, let's just say I'm just an individual and I'm, I'm giving uh, 40 I'm giving $40 a month and I've got a pretty big income but I, that's really all I feel like I can do but but God I, I want you to, to help me be a faithful giver and a generous giver. Would you move me up the rung? Show me how I can do that. I'm going to offer up my money and my possessions and my things to you on a regular basis. I'm going to say, God, show me how I can be faithful. Show me how I can be generous. Lord, I want to be extravagant the way that this poor widow was extravagant. I want to be extravagant in the way that Jesus was extravagant on my behalf. How can I get there? And so, so, so I would even say, if, if you're a note taker, kind of, just kind of jot down that illustration there, that ladder and those rungs, and go back to this regularly and evaluate where you are and ask God to get you higher up on the rungs. You can just leave that up there for right, right now, uh, guys in the back.
Um, next principle I want to give to you is that your giving to Redeemer Church is a primary way that God advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your giving to Redeemer Church is a primary way that God advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so, so what I'm saying is, is when you give financially to the church, you are giving to God's purposes to advance His kingdom and build His people. That's what you're doing. And I think that if you have any less of a view of that, then you, you, you have a, a wrong view. And so I don't know if we can do this right now. Okay, well, stop, stop right here, Isaiah. Thank you. Um, I call our general fund the pillar fund. The reason I do that is because a general fund sounds a lot like a business or an organization. Um, so I, I would rather have more of an accurate name. And I call it the pillar fund because we build every single bit of our ministry on our four pillars. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. You guys know that. So I, our general fund is our pillar fund, and I think we, we should call it that for it to represent exactly what it is. We have a mercy fund that ministers to people in need. We primarily focus on the people inside of our church. We also give to people outside of our church who are in need. That is money that we give once a month, like today, on the first day of the month, to help people who are struggling and could use a bless, some type of financial blessing. Then we have our mission fund, which we give to support both local missions and missions abroad. We have, we have our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other ends of the earth model that we use. And our mission fund goes to advance the gospel both here and all over the world. And then our building fund. We have a building fund that you can give to at any time. And I will tell you about our building fund. Um, we had a number of resources because a lot of us have given toward the building fund. But we've been doing a lot of building, a lot of building. All right, so um, Isaiah, could you put up the, I, don't even know, I think we call this a chart. I just want to give you a, a picture of Redeemer Church and our giving toward these four funds. And this is where we are from January through October of 2014. It might be a little tricky. We might not can get it up. We'll give it about uh, 10 seconds here. Love that. Good job, Isaiah. All right, so some of you in the back might not can see it, but over on the left-hand side, our pillar fund, we, up to this point, we would have budgeted $88,000, uh, I'm sorry, we would have budgeted $81,000 in giving. We have given $88,952. means we've given almost $8,000 more than what we budgeted. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That, that's a sign of grace giving. Our mercy fund, all right, we, um, we have actually given $6,652 for mercy ministry. We have distributed $4,093, all right? So there, there have been people in need in our body for these first 10 months of the year, and we've given $4,000 away for that. Yeah. We have a balance right now of over $4,000 in our mercy ministry. So I would just tell you, somebody is in our, in our church who has a serious need. They can't pay a bill. They've got a doctor's visit or whatever. We're able to look into that. We've got that fund. Bam, here you go. This is to help you. Okay? So we've got that. We have our missions fund. All right, we have given 7000 and change to our missions. We um, have, well, let's see, 4080 would be what was budgeted. So we have given $3,000 more 
than what we actually budgeted, and we have $3,085 right now as a balance. Okay? It's good. It's really good. And then finally, our building fund, we have given $64,000. We have spent $67,000, which, yeah. <laughs> so we are in the deficit in our building fund of 2787 and change, okay? Um, I will tell you guys this. I, I don't feel bad about that because we've done a lot, we have given a lot, and I truly believe that God is going to prosper us in the future, okay? So I, I think that as we look at this, we, we really should be grateful, excited, thankful, and anticipatory and anticipating what God is going to do over the next couple of months and over the next few years of our church. All right. And so, there's one last principle I want to give to you. And that is, your money does not belong to you. Because you don't belong to you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God with your body and with your money and with your possessions. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Your money is not your money. It's God's money to be used for God's glory. Your house is not your house. It's God's house to be used for God's glory. Your resources are not your resources. They're God's resources to be used for God's glory. I, uh, I think I would like for you to just get into a place where you can just think and meditate for a moment. Uh, come on up, Phil. I don't want to leave this sermon without you having done some hard work and make some kind of decision about your heart and your life and your worship regarding giving. And so, whatever way that you can concentrate most fully for the next few minutes do that right now 11 years ago Jamie and I were getting prepared to go to Los Angeles to the master's seminary Jamie quit her teaching jobs I left my work with FCA we got rid of our cars we packed up everything from our house, and we were about to venture out 2,000 miles west. And it was the land of the unknown for us. Jamie didn't have a job. I was trying to raise some money for a ministry that I was going to do. We didn't know where provision was going to come from. We had a couple friend of ours that was really close to us, and they had ministered to us over a number of years. They were loving and compassionate and gracious to us, and... And they had two kids and just had a third. And they were in Brookwood Hospital. And Jamie and I drove over to Brookwood Hospital. They were in a tough time. I mean, they were rejoicing in the birth of their third baby. But she was a stay-at-home mom. They lived very, very modestly. They had just left their church for biblical reasons. They didn't have a support system uh, necessarily around them. And Jamie and I walked into that hospital room that day and we were thinking, we're going to give to them. We're going to love them. We're going to care for them, just like they've cared for us over the years. And when we walked into the room, 
We hugged their necks. We rejoiced with them. And then they said, we've got something that we want to give you. And it was an envelope. And we opened up the envelope, and, and it was a card. And on the front of the card was a picture of a warrior, fully dressed in armor, holding a sword in front of his face. And below the picture was a statement, the battle rages on. And I just want to read to you what they wrote inside the card. Dear Ryan, we praise God for you because you are an answer to our prayers. We've been praying that God would raise up godly men who will live or die on the word. We believe that you are one of them. Therefore, we want to be part of the means that God uses to fulfill our prayers. Please know that you have our continued support. God be glorified. And they signed their names. And in the left-hand column of the card, it said, May this help you in your training for war. And inside the card was a personal check for $5,000. The first question that I asked was why? And the second question that I asked was how? I wore better shoes than he wore. I wore nicer jeans than he wore. I drove a better car than he drove. The answer to both of those questions was grace. This couple had tasted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though they were poor, God in His grace sent Christ and poured out all of the blessings that are spiritual and eternal upon them. And how could they not give graciously and bountifully and abundantly and cheerfully and extravagantly for the work and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I titled the sermon today, Large Sums versus Copper Coins. I could have titled it, Reluctance versus Generosity. I could have titled it obligation versus excitement, duty versus delight, reluctantly versus generosity. But I want to ask you today about your giving. Are you a reluctant giver or a generous giver? Are you an obligatory giver or are you an excited giver? Are you a law giver or are you a grace giver? Listen, God in Christ has poured out His grace on your life. You, in turn, are not just called to give graciously. You have the privilege to do so by His power. Lord, please help us right now to respond to You by giving to You all that we have and all that we are for Your praise and Your glory. Amen.